welcome to the Insight Podcast. Ross McIntosh is joining me on the show today. Ross is a freelance organizational and coaching psychologist who's worked with the NHS, schools, hedge fund managers, and even professional ballet dancers. And he's also the host of his own podcast, the People Soup Podcast. I talked to Ross about why we need to be talking more about the role of awareness and adaptability at work, why mindfulness should play a part in our lives, how to deal with toxic people at work, and much more. Enjoy the episode. So, Ross, you're over in Spain, and I see lovely photos of where you are, and I also have seen some of your recent updates uh, regarding your vegetable patch. So I've got to know, how's it getting on? Because I'm quite jealous. I would love to be able to grow things in a garden, but I live in an apartment, so I can't do that. Um, so let me know, how is it getting on? Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing, actually, because both me and my husband have, have lived in apartments all our adult lives. Yeah. And then to suddenly have a garden where we can, we have grass and plants and a vegetable patch. It's absolutely amazing. And so how's it going? We've had a good crop of tomatoes, both big ones and cherry <laughs> ones. Yeah. And we are awash with cucumbers, pepinos in, in, in Spanish. So much so that we're like, what the heck can we do with these now? <laughs> We've still got some in in the fridge. And the most exciting thing right now is aubergines. We've got three aubergines and super chuffed about that. Yeah, I think that was one of the recent photos that I saw and I'm definitely jealous of that. Like you could be making some homemade moussaka and different things, couldn't you, with those, throwing them into pasta sauces. That's cool. That's really Absolutely. Nice. <laughs> right, let's get into... Um, the more the more pressing topic of our conversation, which is all around what you do, because you are an organizational psychologist. So can we start from there? What what do you mean? What what is organizational psychology? Yeah, it's 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 a difficult title because sometimes people think it's like, um, what's that lady called? Marie Kondo, who's organizing mm. your life, like <laughs> how to tidy your sock drawer. And it's not that. It's <laughs> It's all about how we can bring psychology to organizations and support more effective organizations, whether it's through, say, recruitment, developing processes for recruitment or leadership development. Um, training and development is a, is a big thing for bringing science to that, the science of learning and development. Um, psychometrics in recruitment. Using, using psychometric tools to support recruitment decisions and processes, as well as development uh, processes. Mm. And a big, another big one is well-being, which is a particular focus of mine, and well-being in organizations. How can we support people's psychological well-being to enable them to be the best they can and enable them to show up as the best version of themselves that they can for more mm. of the time? Yeah. Because I guess I feel like so many organizations, companies, and schools as well, with their training, maybe with their recruitment, they kind of, maybe are they just kind of making it up as they go along <laughs> rather than actually basing it on the science and the research, which tells us about 
how the human mind works and more. Um, so yeah. is that the kind of the mission, to, you know, to get these research-backed tools and approaches um, into organisations? Yeah, I mean, mm. absolutely, yes. I mean, things like recruitment. I used to, I spent 20 years or so of my career in the civil service. Mm. And so I was in senior HR positions and I was sitting on panels to recruit senior people alongside other policy people, people with brains the size of a planet. And it was just watching it unfold, an interview where they, where they you could see they warmed to the candidate because they went to the same university or they reminded them of them when they were young. Right. And all these biases and influences can impact on recruitment decisions. So I'd be sitting there going, uh-huh, and trying to ask questions about their skills, their, their attitudes to assess how they might fit in and using things like psychometrics to inform the questions we might ask sort of areas of outstanding strengths, areas where they might need more support should they be appointed to the role. But I think you're right. I think sometimes it's just, do I like this person? Do they remind me of me? <laughs> yeah, which so easily happens. Definitely happens in schools, I think. So when you say psychometrics, what exactly do you mean? How, how could that factor into recruitment? Is it around straight strengths and weaknesses, like you're, you're, you're saying? It, it could be. There are loads of different tools you could use, right. Sam. So there's, there's ones that pe- look at people's strengths. Mm. And then they, there's some really nifty ones that look at people's strengths and how they might look to other people when they're overused or underused. It's to give people a framework to to consider, but they measure personality and how that personality might show up in the workplace. So they they generally use a five-factor model of personality. I won't go into the big lecture, but it's it's things like, are people conscientious? How open are they? How agreeable are they? And, And how might they be emotionally reactive it's things like that and by giving them a questionnaire to complete their psychologist or someone qualified in using those tools can then i used to write reports for senior recruitment for example in in government well in the civil service to say i think they'd behave like this in that sort of situation like i say if they were appointed to this more senior role they probably need some developmental support here, or this would be something to watch right. out for for them. And it's not just me giving them a tool and presenting my report to the panel. I'd actually then have a conversation with the candidate before the panel to say, you've completed this. Let's, let's check out some of my hypotheses that I've derived from this. So it's quite rigorous, and it gives loads of clues to the panel and also helps the candidate develop as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, anything that can kind of highlight your strengths, and you think, right, I can. Um, this is something I can offer the the company, the 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 job, whatever it is. But also, all right, the, these are some things I can work on. I can see how that must be must be hugely mm. useful, and and maybe something that that schools could be doing more. Perhaps I don't know, but yeah, really interesting. Right. So, how about we get into a little bit more around that and and the work that you do, because you talk about Ross relating to how you can help people relate to stress better, explore personal meaning, and grow awareness and adaptability. So, I'd first of all like to know about that awareness piece um what do you mean by awareness at work and what role does it play and how could i improve or grow my awareness Mm. so i think fundamentally everything 
I my sort of mission in in my work is to bring evidence-based skills to the workplace. So, and one of the core ones is this awareness. Mm. Why do I consider this to be sort of fundamental is we don't always realize how we're showing up at work. We don't always realize the impact we're having on ourselves or those people around us because we are caught inside our own heads. We can spend quite a lot of our time living inside our own heads and not being present to what's going on around us and not really noticing that stuff that's going on in our heads that could maybe mean that we're not showing up as the best version of ourselves. So that's, that's kind of what I mean by awareness. We're not always aware of ourselves or, or what's going on around us. Yeah, so often kind of caught in the autopilot, aren't we? And just mm. going through the motions. And yeah, it feels like just a little bit of work around that, a little bit of an awareness of having more awareness can just be the first stepping stone, can't it? And I feel like in schools, I think it's a good example that so many teachers you see getting worked up about an observation or people, I don't know, a learning walk or something coming to, to look at them and thinking it's all about myself and like, oh, I'm really anxious about this. And I, I would just, I try and like encourage that awareness around it's, but it's not about you. Remember, it's always about the children. Like, this is why you're here, isn't it? This is our mission to educate children and to make them happy and healthy. So don't get too caught up in this. Like, it's all about me. It's all, all about me. But I guess that's kind of a hyper awareness that you're completely focusing on yourself. Yeah. And it, and it's, it's entirely natural to do that. I would say yeah, that of course, you're thinking, yeah. say you're being observed by the dreaded O. <laughs> and and they are coming to observe you you'll naturally start to feel vulnerable and oh my goodness i'm going to be discovered for the fraud that i am <laughs> type well if you me that's my might be what you were thinking oh me too me too <laughs> and it's all going to go pear-shaped and i'm going to look like an idiot and that stuff can really leave us stuck in the tangle inside our own minds rather than being out there being the brilliant educator that we could be mm -hmm. so awareness is about yeah tapping into that and and showing up as you said to, as the best possible version of, of of ourselves so how do we how do we grow our our awareness then yeah it, it takes practice it's not something you can do like overnight like suddenly i'm uber aware and i would say we're talking about teachers obviously you you're a teacher but i think it's a skill you probably develop in the classroom you are you are with a classroom of, of young people and you're quite vigilant of what's going on and who's engaged, who's yawning, who's, who's super excited, that sort of thing. But how can we, how can we cultivate it more is mm. we can use things like mindfulness. Now, mindfulness, it's interesting. I think it has a bit of a bad rap sometimes. I think it's almost a victim of its own success. And I think people might consider mindfulness to be what they've read about in a magazine or heard about on a TV program, because there are people out there peddling mindfulness, not in a very ethical or appropriate way. Mm. Let me be quite clear about that. And they're, they're saying that mindfulness is something like clearing your mind of thoughts and imagining a, a calm middle pond. And that's not what it is for me. No. It's more about noticing what's going on in our minds. It's, yeah. it's noticing those thoughts that may be troublesome or uncomfortable or 
downright awful. And it's about noticing our body too. And by cultivating that capability, we're also enabling ourselves to focus more. We're enabling ourselves to gather the scattered mind. And it's like we might go to the gym to look after our body, give us a bit, a bit of body maintenance. But how much attention do we pay to our, our mind? Possibly not as much. And it's, and it's funny, I was, this, this, this just popped into my head, but I was doing um, a few sessions with, um, I've got to be careful how much I give away, but a, a group <laughs> of people in the public sector, yeah. a group of leaders, senior people. And it was over two days. And I did a couple of mindfulness exercises on the first day. And one of them was really uncomfortable. Like, oh, I noticed lots of really uncomfortable things. And I'm like, great noticing. And they were like, what? What? You, you think that's good? I was like, yeah. Because that stuff could potentially derail you from being the person you want to be. It could do a job on you. And then the next day... I did another mindfulness exercise, and this person went, right, much clearer then. I've got it. Right, what's next? It was like they had achieved mindfulness in, yeah. over Box the course ticked. of two days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was kind of like, well, it's called mindfulness practice. Yeah. And I find someone at NHS trusts, it's been damaged, the reputation of mindfulness. They are saying to me, don't use the M word. And... Finding different ways to do it. We can do it with our five senses. Could we go and step outside our front door and say what we can see, what we can hear, what we can smell? Can we feel the wind or the rain or the sun on our faces? It's using those senses to connect us with now because we know that the mind is a time traveler. If your mind's anything like mine, it might be going to the past and going, oh, girl, you are really embarrassing then in that meeting. Or going to the future that and predicting the worst. I, yeah. I come from a long line of catastrophizers, Sam, and my mind will naturally just escalate an everyday occurrence to utter desolation in nanoseconds. So we know that our mind is like a time traveler, backwards and forwards, and that wandering mind isn't really a happy mind. Mm. The research is showing us. So if we could practice bringing it back to now, that's a really important skill for us it's a really healthy thing for us to do and and it takes practice yeah i really like that explanation that was so so interesting and then the phrase that you used about how we, mindfulness can be used to, to gather up a scattered mind that's that's really stuck with me and what you said about people people's perception of it is really interesting is it oh, i've got to clear my mind and it's like good luck good luck <laughs> trying to have an, yeah. an empty calm mind because there are people that have been doing it for 20 years you know 10,000 hours of just sitting there meditating and they can't clear their mind you know that's that's not the way that mind works the mind Ex works is it exactly. constantly back and forth so, yeah but as you said those those practices and, and what they can do for you in terms of your focus and in terms of I always talk about and you know you know not that it's my realization it's because of things that I've learned about is that that space that it opens up that once you have been doing these practices for a while that then it means that your awareness is such that an email can come through a colleague can say something a family member can give you a look and it's like right I'm going to pause 
what's the best course of direction here, not an instant reaction. And that can be a second or two, can't it? But you pause and go, right, what is the way that I can respond to this that is actually in line with myself and not just uh, a knee-jerk kind of uh, learned behaviour? That's where the power lies, I think. Oh, Sam, I loved what you just said. You gave me goosebumps. <laughs> oh, good, good. The, the, do we take the time to pause or do we get caught up in those habitual loops of like... Exactly, exactly. Of like, I get an email, I go into a panic. I, it's, it's, it's daft things like I'm travelling, suddenly I can't find my passport and I go into some blind panic, like running around. Oh! And actually I've put it somewhere really safe. I've just forgotten for a moment what I've done yeah and that's the that's the rub a bit about mindfulness you don't always notice the difference mm. as, as you keep practicing and you keep practicing and it, it's your description there really reminded me of the difference that it's done it's it's helped me bring to my life that that those moments of pause where I go okay and and I love what you describe is thinking what would be the way that the best version of me would respond to that? Mm, mm. So how do you go about it? Is, is there one practice that you recommend or is there one practice that you um, have introduced to your life? You know, anyone that's listening to this and thinking, right, well, what is the approach to mindfulness that I could start incorporating into my life? What would, mm. you, what would you say? I'd say start with short practices and short yeah. practices can be really ef- effective. I use, right. I still use short practices. Yep. Same, same. Mm-hmm. So I don't know about you, but like 10 minutes, most days I try for less for me. It's more like three to seven at the moment. Mm-hmm. And that, that is great. Cause there's, there's a, there's a practice called the three step breathing space or the three minute breathing space, mm. which is really neat. And it's just about, noticing what's going on, gathering the attention and then expanding it again. And it's the evidence shows us that that's super useful in developing this skill. Mm. Other practices I find useful, I quite like a a bog standard body and breath, bringing my attention to the body because quite often we're quite disconnected from the body. We we can be, sometimes people, when I'm, with working with people in the workplace, they're saying, I kind of live above from the neck up. They're not really paying any attention. And one that I was really resonates with me is ones where I'm listening for sounds. Mm-hmm. I really like those. So just seeing what you can hear around you, maybe outside the room you're in, or maybe you just, it's a great one for connecting with nature. When I'm out on my bike, I'm trying to hear the birds, the, the tractor, um, maybe a goat or two. It's just, it's just. What can I tune into? The noise of my bike, the noise of me breathing. That that's a really powerful one for me. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, thanks for sharing. <laughs> for uh, yeah, for sharing those. Right, can we move on to adaptability then? Kind of the the, the same questions, I guess, that, that I've just yeah. asked you around awareness, and but this time applied to adaptability. What what. What does that mean to you and how can I be more adaptable at work or, or just in my life in general? Yeah. And I think adaptable is a really important word. You might call it flexibility, but adaptable, I don't mean being a sort of passive um, responder to what's going on around you and just thinking, well, oh, this is my lot. 
what I mean is how can we adapt to the contexts in which we find ourselves and respond in a way that's aligned with our authentic self. So that's what I mean about adapting. And how can I also be less encumbered, if that's a word, less, less influenced by that stuff in my head that, that might be a little bit uncomfortable, the world that probably is. So I'll unpack that a bit more, if yeah, I may. Please, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so how often do we think as human beings or as teachers or as professionals, whatever we might be, after we think about what's important in the way that I show up in my profession, what qualities of behavior do I want to bring to this, to me as a teacher, me as a, I don't know, me as a nurse, me as a, an organizational psychologist, whatever it might be, what's important about how I show up? And we might call those personal values. And quite often as humans, we can lose touch with those personal values, or perhaps we never really explored them ourselves that deeply. Mm. They can guide us sort of unconsciously, but just by bringing them to the surface and thinking, well, who do I want to be? Or why the heck did I get into this profession in the first place? That's a conversation I've had with quite a few teachers who felt disconnected from all the stuff that's thrown at them, the, the, the targets, the policies, the, the media, the, the parents, the, whatever it might be. There's, there's a whole list. I don't need to tell you. <laughs> and feeling utterly disconnected from why they got into that in the first place. And exploring their values can be really revelatory, how they want to be, those qualities of behavior and choosing five or six that would act as a kind of behavioral beacon for how they're going to show up, even in the turbulent times. So that's part of adaptability. Mm. And you'll, note, you'll notice why awareness is, was the first thing we talked about, because we have to be aware of how we're showing up. And am I moving towards the best version of myself? And we can use our personal values as a guide for that. We can also shine a light on that unhelpful stuff that shows up. Because whenever we think about who I really want to be, it's like two sides of the same coin. There's some other stuff that shows up. Those things I mentioned earlier, like I'm not good enough. I'm stupid. I'm knackered. Um, I'm going to be discovered for the fraud that I am. <laughs> These people are really going to kick off if I, if I take the action I, I think I want to take. Mm -hmm. And those things can show up inside of us and really influence how we're showing up. They can hijack our behavior and mean that we're showing up generally as perhaps not the best version of ourselves. Maybe if, if some of those things are showing up for me, maybe I'll decline invitations, like to appear on a podcast with Sam. Maybe I'll think, oh, Imagine if that thought, I'm not clever enough, I'm going to be discovered, is showing up. And, and Sam, the legend of the podcast world and the teaching world, invites me to come on his podcast. I'd be like, oh, shit. No, no, maybe not for me. Just say, oh, sorry, mate. No, I'm kind of washing my hair. So you see what I mean? That, that could, that's not who I want to be. I want to be someone who's 
sharing behavioral science with people, with adults in the workplace, mm. because I know from some of the research I'm involved in at City University of London, we know that at any one time in a workplace, between 40 and 50% of people will be experiencing borderline clinical levels of distress. And it's kind of like, holy moly, that is, it's kind of what gets me out of bed in the morning. Because mm. I think there must be something I can do about that. So there must be some small way I could contribute to this. And bringing behavioral science, we know, can, can bring that right down to below the threshold and sustain it. Yeah. So what, well, this might be a bit difficult to answer, but what do you put that huge percentage down to? Is it that people are, you know, turning up and not, not quite aware of what, what it's about and they are not living a life that is aligned or they just haven't made, they haven't kind of connected the dots. You know, I hear about research of, uh, looking into the the janitors, the the cleaners at hospitals, and you you talk to two sides, and and the ones that describe their job, well, they're making a difference, they're helping the patients, aren't they? And they're really satisfied with, uh, with work. But then there's the others that just think that they're just you know in, in inverted commas just cleaning a hospital, which of course they're not, but they haven't got as much satisfaction because they don't see the bigger purpose of it, and they haven't connected with the whole mission of the hospital, which is to cure people and to help people. Is is that what's at play, or am I just completely clutching at straws? No, no, yeah, you're absolutely spot on, and I think <laughs> I think circumstances can wear us down. I think right. work is stressful. Yeah, number one, I think work is a stressful environment. And I think it's, I think it's possibly got more stressful. Mm. I think life has got more complex. Do I think that? Yes, I do. I think life has got more complex. I think there's more pulls on our attention. I think there's more, more pulls for us to maybe compare ourselves with other people. Yeah. I think there's more, and that includes our colleagues, but also a much wider field, our friends. But then we start looking on social media when these people are curating their perfect lives and thinking, well, that's not happening to me. <laughs> so it's kind of like, I think there are a lot of pressures in, in daily life. And, and through a combination of these things, we can lose sight of what matters to us. Mm. So I think we can become a bit disconnected from our work. Mm. And it turns into something where we're more or less like robots just turning up and thinking, well, and I'm not sure whether this, I don't think my thinking's that evolved on this, but I think I just reflecting the other day with someone else saying that my parents always used to say to me, oh, back to the grind tomorrow on a Sunday. And I was like, well, yes. And at times it did feel like a grind. Uh, a grind. But my dad still says this to me now. He says, oh, back to the grind tomorrow. It's going to be. And it goes into that sort of despondent voice. Mm. And I'm like, well, actually, dad, I'm a freelancer. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. And sometimes it is challenging and scary and anxiety provoking. And I've chosen this. Yeah. So it's, it's great. And I'm not sure you can quite grasp that mm. not sure but i kind of 
I kind of think I've gone off on a tangent, but I think, I think, are we, is life just more stressful? Yeah. We've, we've never had such a good quality of life in, 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 in the countries we live in yet rates of depression and anxiety and stress are, are very high rates of prescribing medication for that are very high so what's going on is it that connection with with that meaning and is it perhaps being hijacked by that those unhelpful thoughts i would yeah. say yeah that that can play a real part because those unhelpful thoughts aren't inherently unhelpful themselves it's how we respond to them that that can cause us all sorts of things like anxiety unproductive behaviors addictions things like that yeah i i think that's it i think it's all down to disconnection and i think have you do you know johan hari and his book um stolen focus as, as well as his other work that he puts down mm. a lot of this stuff to just disconnection disconnection from family from community from nature of course as well um there's a um a writer Freya India, who I've connected with on Twitter as well, who's written some excellent articles on on masculinity, feminism, amongst other things. But she she talks about this as well about the disconnection that we're feeling, and that loneliness is not just the community; it's not just a disconnection from that, but it's all these other pieces, including from nature, from our bodies, and, and things like that. So yeah, I, I, it, it makes sense to me, and I think so. But I, but I like the point that you made about how we're living in you know the best time in human history, aren't we? We are mm. so well looked after. We've got all of these luxuries. We're living longer. We're healthier. You know everything. But like you said, we're not happier. So what's going on? And I don't know the answer to that, but I do think disconnection is is what it's all about. Mm. And I think nature definitely plays a part and, and moving our bodies and getting into sunlight definitely are, are huge factors. Absolutely. <laughs> but at the same time, what I, what I always like to ask people, and, and psychologists especially, I'm, I feel so lucky that I get to chat to people like you, to, to psychologists um, who know what they're talking about, and like me, who just kind of make stuff up. But anyway, um, but where, does, where does like the kind of the grit and the resilience factor into this? Do, do you know what I mean? How, yes, people are feeling more anxious and stressed, and, and I completely agree, and I think the demands that uh, uh, placed on people now and the expectations and how, you know, for example, uh, a mother who's maybe got three ki kids at home and is, has got a career, but has also got to be cooking these amazing meals. And she's also got to really take care of herself and look great. And she needs to be going to the gym and her yoga classes as well. And she's also got to take the kids to those birthday parties at the weekend and, and all these different things. There's, there's so much, uh, stress, isn't there? An expectation placed on people. And on the flip side, is it that we, is it that people are less kind of resilient? And because isn't it that always we've had to go through stressful periods and there are some times when you've just kind of got to get your head down and it just will be crap for a while mm. and you've got to kind of get through it. And that doesn't mean that, you know, <laughs> It doesn't mean that you have to be diagnosed with something. And I hope that what I'm saying isn't like, it doesn't sound um, insensitive or anything like that, but, but I hope you can understand what I'm getting at. Like, where's mm. the balance there? And I kind of think of, you know, this past year, year and a half, when I've been through some maybe more, more difficult times, whether it's been at work or a relationship ending. And it's like, 
nothing I could have done would really help those situations. I just had to get through it. It was just kind of a matter of time. I was doing all the cold showers and the exercise and eating healthily and all this stuff. And it was just a bit rubbish for a while. And, and you know, I just had to get through it. So, mm. yeah, I hope you understand what I'm saying and, and feel free to kind of lend me your thoughts or I can just move on to the next question. It's up to you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, it's really interesting what you're saying. That that resilience piece, and I think I, I my argument would be I think that what's our purpose? That the, the great example you gave of a mother mm. with multiple responsibilities, like looking great at the school gate because comparing yourselves with the other <laughs> mothers, you can't just turn up in your slippers. Um, cooking beautiful meals, getting to the gym, blah 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 blah. blah being a taxi service, all of that, mm. and finding no time for yourself. I think yeah. you can lose touch with what matters in life and just think, well, I should do that or I must do that. And part of, part of my work is thinking, well, forget society's pressures. What, what really matters to you? What brings you a bit of joy? What, when you connect with that, how, do, how can you look after yourself? And the, the conversations I have a lot, you can imagine, in the NHS. And it, I think it's like teachers, too. In my experience, some, quite a lot of teachers have, have lost contact with what matters or yeah. why the hell they got into this profession in the first place. I think the NHS can feel a bit the same, and you're both giving of yourself to others. Mm. Compassion, leadership, role modeling, and it's tiring. When do you ever turn that light of compassion back onto yourself and think, Sam, how are you going to look after yourself? Mm-hmm. And, and there's, a, there's a bit of a trite phrase people sometimes use. It's not my favorite thing, but people say you can't pour from an empty cup. Yeah. yeah. So you need to, to replenish yourself first. And I think I get the sentiment behind that. Absolutely. But I was talking to a friend who also had a long career as a, as a nurse in, in, in various branches of nursing, including palliative care. And she said to me, you can. Mm. You can pour from an empty cup, and that is the problem. You can just keep going. Mm. And words like grit alarm me a bit, I think, because I think it's just that, well, just buckle up, boy, I'll <laughs> keep going. I was going to say, I am going to say, man up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't Can't be say a it wimp. anymore, can you? But yeah. <laughs> Don't be a wimp. Yeah. All those thoughts that we might hear from others or we might hear inside our own heads mm. because I think we are our own worst critics. We speak to ourselves in ways that we would never speak to someone close to us. Like, you're, you're stupid, you're an idiot, you're worthless. And... It's bringing that kindness to us as well, that we radiate to other people. But do we afford ourselves that kindness? So, so I think grit can, that, that's, that's, that sort of message to just crack on mm. and suck it up it isn't helpful. And I don't think it's right. And I don't think it's healthy. And I think connecting with your purpose, it's not always easy to take action aligned with your purpose. But that shows you're connected to something important. Mm. If you're taking action that's led by, oh, I'm no good, I'm frustrated, I'm anxious, that just leaves you stuck in a 
a mire of kind of trapped inside the tangle in your head and not not very satisfying. So resilience isn't about making yourself into a superwoman or a superman. It's it's making yourself connect with things that are important. Maybe saying no sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a problem I'm coming across more in in the workplace and in life in general with people who who just think the only answer is to say, yeah, mm-hmm. I'll do that and I'll deliver it and it's going to be great yeah. at their own expense. Of course, yeah. Yeah, I get it. Oh, you might be picking up the um, ice cream van that's just pulled up outside my house. I'm oh sorry my. about that. <laughs> do you live in the same street as my dad? Because that is the ice cream jingle that... Oh, really? It's <laughs> the one I used to run outside to decades ago. But you're, you're definitely not in Northumberland, are you? No, not, no. Beautiful Birmingham. Yeah, beautiful grey and wet Birmingham at the moment. Um, yeah, interesting. I, I completely get it. I completely get it. Of course, grit, you know, if you, you keep at it, then it's a recipe for burnout, isn't it? Eventually, you yeah. just, you, you, will, you will burn out. So it's about that healthy resilience. And this is something that I spoke to Joe Oliver, another psychologist about, um, and others as well. Yeah, that, that healthy resilience. Yeah, there is a time to, um, you know, work hard and get your head down. And it's, it's going to be a bit tough for a while, but it's always got to be that, that balance. And if you just keep mm. pushing, 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 eventually that's, you know, you're, you're, you're taking a bit of a loan out from the bank, aren't you? That you're going to have to repay one at some yeah. point And it's probably got some interest on it as well. Interesting. So is that, is this all tying into then how we can disconnect from work and how we can recover from work? If we're more aware of ourselves and aware of our values and we can be adaptable, is that how we can step away from work and and get that rejuvenation that we need so that we're there to turn up the next day in a better position? Ab- absolutely, yes. Mm. You, you bang on. Because <laughs> quite often we might just have a really, we might get into a habit of having a really demanding day at work, coming home and just going, oh, <laughs> on the sofa and going, and who's going to have a glass of wine? Mm. And you have one of those enormous glasses that maybe holds <laughs> half a bottle and you're like, Arr. and then it just becomes sort of more habitual and it might feel good at that time, but is, so we can also explore our values. I guess my, my point is we can explore our values and our best version of ourselves. How do we want to be outside of work in our relationships? Mm. How do we want to be in relation to our own leisure time? How do we want to be moving our bodies and looking after ourselves? And how do we want to be with our own health? It's getting people to think they may be similar to the values you uh, display at work, but it's getting people to think intentionally, what can I do to to feed these areas of my life? Mm. When the temptation could be just to lie on the sofa, and sometimes that will be the best version of you for that day. If you've had a really, really shitty day, maybe it is just lie on the sofa. And that is you moving towards the best version of yourself for that moment. And sometimes it will be thinking, well, actually, I'm going to go out on a bike ride or I'm going to go to the gym. And that will be the right thing to do. So it's only we know deep down. But if I'm getting home and my mind is still at work, I'm ruminating about all the dreadful things that happened in a working day. That's not allowing me to disconnect at all. My body thinks I'm still at work because my mind is still there. Mm. So it's, it's all those stresses and physiological effects on our bodies. So 
it's really important that we disconnect. Otherwise, as you're saying, we just kind of spiral down and down and down into burnout. And there's lots of there's lots of toxic things going on in workplaces. You know, maybe a colleague who sends an email at eleven o'clock, and you maybe see it. My top tip here, folks, is don't open it. In fact, hide your phone. If you've got a, a phone that's separate for work, disconnect it. Yeah, It's not important. But you will get those people who reply to it going, oh, yes, you and me both up um, working at 11 p.m. at night. Aren't we the blooming heroes? Yeah. And it's like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're, you're creating a really bad example for your colleagues. Mm. And if someone hasn't responded at 11, they maybe think, oh, am I doing this wrong? I'm not in their gang. They could feel sort of excluded. And it's little things like that that just are so unhelpful. And I read, I think it, we're both on Twitter, Sam, and I read something on Twitter. I don't know if you saw this. I can't remember exactly, but it was some, it was some school awards. And people had been given an award for working through the night Mark, teachers have been given an award for working through the night marking papers or or working all weekend. And it's just like, wow. These are the people who are setting role models and examples for their colleagues, but also the children of the future. Don't reward this. No. <laughs> Help them get out of this unhealthy cycle. Yeah, oh, definitely. I think... You know, even just having the email app on your phone, I just, I'm not sure, you know, if you've got your, um, you haven't got a separate work phone, but you've got just a, a regular phone, but you've, it's connected to your work email, like, why? Especially for teachers, it, it kind of makes me, it just makes me cringe and it's painful when I see that people are saying, yeah, that they're checking their email at night when they're a teacher. It's like, no, nothing will be that pressing. And I'm even seeing now teachers and teaching assistants with smartwatches and their, their work emails are popping up on their smartwatch all the time. So they're in the middle of lessons and checking it and at break time and stuff and looking and they're like literally pinging and they're looking at their emails. I'm like, what? Like You're not uh, an emergency doctor. You do not need to be checking this at the moment. Like, what are we here for? We're here for the kids and to teach them. You don't need to be doing that. And you also don't need to be checking your email at nine, eight o'clock in the evening. It's like, it's okay. The world will keep turning without you. <laughs> I think we have a bit of a habit of taking things a bit, a little bit too seriously. And I think people kind of enjoy that because it kind of, maybe it gives them a little more purpose and a little bit more, you know, that they feel so useful and it's, it feels, <laughs> We can become guilty of that, can't we? Like, this must mean that I'm, I'm useful and, and I've got to respond to this urgently. Um, that must mean that I matter a lot. And of course, that's not to downplay just how vital all of these teachers and teaching assistants are. But I think, I don't think we need the, the emails coming through on our phones and I don't think we need smartwatches. I don't think we need smartwatches full stop, to be honest. But anyway. <laughs> I, I agree. And just because the technology is there doesn't mean that it's helpful for our health. A hundred percent. Yeah. And and you're right. It's 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 maybe their purpose is I'm the first one to respond to an email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's that sort of competition. Whereas bring it back. I I wholeheartedly agree. Bring it back to the children. Mm -hmm. Thinking about what's your purpose as an educator, as a teaching assistant, as a teacher, whatever it might be. Bring it back to that and really explore that. Yeah, yeah. Rather so than this distraction. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and I like what you're saying about when you, when you get home and you just feel like you need to collapse on the sofa and that might be what is needed at that moment. And I definitely, you know, I have plenty of those moments as well where I just collapse and, and watch Netflix or something. But you talked about how there might be some other options. Like, so what, what though do you suggest for people? How do you, you know, when you get home and it is so tempting to open the bottle of wine or crack open mm. a beer? Sometimes that's okay, isn't it? We get it. Yeah. But if someone's thinking, actually, maybe this isn't the night for it, but it's oh, it's pulling me in that direction. How, how can we stop that in its tracks and think, well, what, what could I do instead? Hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's difficult. Yeah. It's absolutely difficult, but it's recognizing those choices we have, right? And it's recognizing what you said earlier. That pause. I love that. That that pause am I going to grab a beer from the fridge? But I said to myself, I was going to go out on my bike tonight. What? Then just pausing and thinking, I love going out on my bike, but I've got to go and get my gear on, go and get the bike from the shed. And maybe it looks like it might rain. Unlikely, unlikely in Spain in drought conditions, but, um, <laughs> or maybe it's too hot. Maybe there'll be road users out and maybe I prefer it without road users my mind just starts throwing up all these little excuses that can almost hijack my attention. And I end up going, come on, Ross, you deserve it. Crack the beer open. And like I say, sometimes that will be the right thing for me. But sometimes, many more times, I would suggest the right thing is for me to go, right, gear's ready, got my shoes ready. Let's just go out for a little bike ride. Maybe it's 5K, but I know that will feed me. That's what I need, that's what will nurture me. And only we really know that deep down, but it's taking that time to pause rather than go, oh, look, there's the beer. There's a bag of crisps. I'm going to have that because I'm a legend. And that will feel great in the short term. Trudging upstairs to get my gear on and get ready to go out, I feel like, oh. But I know that once I start that first rotation of the pedals, I feel like, yeah, you are right. Mm. And it doesn't always work out like that. Sometimes I do get the beer and the crisps. And then a can down, I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> and I still could go out on my bike. It's just a little can. But but you know what I mean? It's that becoming more aware, going back to that first word, the aware mm. of who do I want to be in this moment when I've got back from work. How do I want to be with my husband? Do I want to be downloading about work? Sometimes, yes. But sometimes, if I've had a bit of a challenging day, sometimes I'll be not the best version of myself. I'll be a grumpy old bugger. And it's like, yeah, mate, you're not covering yourself in glory here. How do you want to be in this relationship? Or, Or calling my dad. I speak to my dad every day on Zoom. And sometimes I'm really thinking, oh, I could do without this. There'll be some amazing thing that's happened in the village about the bin collection day. (laughs) And I'll be like, I want to be there. I want to be engaged and listening and understanding his world. But sometimes I'll be like, must respond to that email. Let's just write that down. Must get back to them. And I forgot to do that. And I'm not with him. So it's thinking, how do we want to be? And that's what can give us really powerful meaning and it's not always easy sometimes it's easier just to have the crisps and the beer 
Absolutely. Amen. But I like the example that you gave about your dad as well, because it, yeah, it's so true. It's not just about exercise, is it? It's about connecting with people. It, it takes a bit of effort to pick up the phone or to go meet the friend in the middle of the week, but you almost always feel better for it, don't you? Same with mm. exercise. You almost always feel better for having exercise, but it's just... Mm getting over that initial kind of friction and, and resistance. And this is where I think we can learn from people like James Clear and others that are kind of in these, these habits forming. And, and he talks a lot about environment, does it, doesn't he? Mm. And, and this is the thing, if you've, if you've got a beer and a Chris habit that you want to kind of reduce, then think about how your environment's set up so that the beer is at the back of the fridge and the crisps are in the cupboard, like kind of hidden and behind something. So it takes a bit more effort. And is the bike gear there? Like, you know, the, on the mornings where I, want to go to the gym I'll put out my gym stuff the night before so it's there ready to go and it's like the decision's been made when it doesn't take much effort so then when I wake up oh, it's there that you know that means that I'm going I've got no choice about it so it's these little um little tricks almost aren't they that we can do yeah. with ourselves that can really help we're giving ourselves the cues and making yeah, the cues, those yeah. excuses kind of just melt away like oh, I haven't got my gear out well oh, there it is on the chair yeah. The bike's not ready. Oh, that's, I put it outside last night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. There's, there's one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, and I'm not sure it's very, uh, a PC topic, but, um, <laughs> I have kind of pre-warned you, haven't I? About yeah, you have. to toxic people at work. It's something that I am interested to talk to an organizational psychologist about because I think, Perhaps people listening will know the type of person that I'm talking about, the person at work that maybe is drawn to the negativity, is drawn to the gossip, and maybe hasn't got so much going on outside of work. And so the, the drama of work is what really kind of keeps them alive and keeps the adrenaline um, flowing. They're talking about how terrible that training was and what that person said and all these things, which I think most of us, that's not what we want to surround ourselves with. It's not a good use of our time. It's not a good thing for our kind of energy levels. So is this something you've had experience of? Is it something that you have any advice around? How do we um, communicate with, deal with? I'm not sure that's the right word, but um, how do we approach those 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 people mm. at work that are negative, that are gossiping, et cetera? I'll, I'll have a go. <laughs> have a go and, that's all you can do <laughs> and heck yes i've encountered it sounds very very familiar i'm sure it will be to your listeners as well uh, <laughs> and these people tend to have quite a platform yeah absolutely they thrive on having an audience and telling mm. everyone how rubbish it is and how that decision was wrong and the leadership is terrible and what do they think they're doing so yes and it can be wearing for those around them and there's almost a collusion perhaps, between people around them to go, they're just not say anything, mm. perhaps. So what can we do as individuals? Well, first of all, I don't think we can control the other person. We can't control what they're doing or saying or how they're responding to events. We can only control ourselves. So maybe thinking about using the science that I use, how do we want to be in that circumstances? What sort of qualities do we want to bring to our behavior? Because we might get caught up. Say, say for, let me give you an example. Say I want to be clear. I want to be professional. And I want to be considerate. Just for example, three qualities I want to bring to my behavior. But at the same time, showing up in my head is they're a pain in the ass. 
Do they have to be so negative all the time? They're such a bitch. They're just going on and on. Do they ever shut up? They've got nothing going on. And all of that stuff, if that was grabbing my attention and my behavior, I might start, this is only me, folks, but I might start going, well, I might start sort of almost mirroring their behavior, complaining about them to other people, looking to enroll. Isn't it a pain that Bob is such a, a burden and such a negative Nelly and all that? What could I do to reflect who I really want to be? Maybe uh, maybe me being the person I want to be might be just withdrawing myself from the situations when I notice it happening. Mm. Maybe it, it could be having a word with them. I'm not sure that would work. Honestly, frankly, I think where this person gets their energy, if it's like the people I've met, is is that attention. And if you bring, say, this is making me uncomfortable, I find it quite negative, they'll take that as almost like a, oh, I've got a new badge. Yeah. A bit of ammunition. A bit of uh, validation. So I think maybe thinking, how do you want to be in relation to that? Is it to remove yourself from that situation? Is it to try and change the topic or give a counter view? Because Perhaps if you give a counter view, other people will say, oh, actually, I agree with Sam. I think that decision was, I understand why they've taken that decision. Mm. But I think most people are just generally worn down by it and think, if I do tackle it, they're going to kick off. And that might be the, exactly what would happen. But we can get stuck in all that sort of catastrophizing. And also, I think the danger for us is it starts impacting on our mood and our energy. So thinking, well, how can I best respond to this? Maybe it's by disconnecting from it. Maybe it's by going and speaking to, maybe it's starting a side conversation with someone else, removing some of their sort of, I don't know, the word that's popping into my head is disciples. Because mm. sometimes people will passively just be engaging, going, yeah, yeah. And sometimes they'll get enrolled in it. Oh, for sure. Go, yeah. yeah, that is a shit decision. And blah, blah, blah rather than seeing different perspectives or knowing that there are different perspectives and maybe you could voice those, maybe you just start just testing yourself, pausing again to think, actually, am I aligned with this perspective? No, I'm not. Do I find this energy useful? No, I don't. So I'm going to exit if there's a way to exit or I'm going to maybe gently challenge. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't think I've got a magic solution. But I think it's thinking how we want to show up. What qualities do we want to bring to that relationship with that person? If you're the, the line manager of that person, I think then it is kind of incumbent upon you to have that difficult conversation. If you're impacted by it, maybe it is having a conversation with the line manager mm -hmm. to say, can I support you in in addressing this. There's alarm bells going off in my head as well, Sam, because there's something recognized in the literature called chronic embitterment, which basically almost describes what you've described to me. It's someone who's disillusioned with everything. They've, there's been some injustice, organizational injustice brought on them mm. maybe 10 years ago, and they'll just not stop talking about it. And it's very difficult to, to respond to that. 
But I would say, are there avenues, are there different things you could do to look after yourself? Yeah. Maybe removing yourself from the situation. Maybe if you're the line manager, seeking support from others about how you could address this. And if you're not the line manager, maybe going to them and saying, do you mind if I just ask, how is their impact on you? Did you notice the, do you know their impact on the having on this ecosystem within this working environment? But it's so tricky. I'm afraid I don't have a magic solution. No, it, it is tricky, but everything that you said makes sense to me. Um, you know, what you say about how it's so easy to get sucked into it, isn't it? And get wrapped into it and or and, and kind of join in with that conversation and the gossiping because it's there and it kind of just wears you down. And then you just go, okay, I'll just join in as well because it's kind of, I don't know, it's just easy and you kind of want to appease that person. And so you go along with it. But yeah, I think having the the bravery to to stand up and either say that you don't agree or um, put them in their place, to be honest, mm. or give it an alternative perspective, or like you say, just remove yourself is 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 powerful, and it's something that I wish more people would do. Yeah, to just like when someone starts talking like that, you just go, "Oh, this is boring," and I like, just walk away. Yeah. It could be very impactful, couldn't it? But yeah, I and, also that, and that could help on. others wake up from that awareness of just getting I'm agree I'm going to join in this little yeah. gossip fest and sorry I interrupted you no 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 it's, yeah that's it that's it but then I, I think what you also said about how you know we almost don't know what's going on in that person's life do we and I think that's where it's tricky because I think some people it's like it seems like you are dealing with something from your past like if you're being this kind of negative and you're enjoying this so much like what has happened here and I it's a challenge though and you want to be compassionate with people and you want to be understanding but then when they the way that they're acting is so malicious and horrible and just it, it is upsetting a lot of people and like where's the balance again where's the balance mm. between being compassionate and just calling someone out on their yeah. their nonsense and I think I often look at organizations and think it's a bit like the playground. Mm. Are they worse than the kids? The adults are worse than the kids. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> how how any organization that is functional or survives is beyond me because it is like you can almost spot the characters. Yeah. And you probably much more than me, but it's almost like they're just playing out the same habitual things and it's getting yeah. them to realize the impact on on people. Absolutely. And yeah. One person taking a, a slightly different stand, either leaving or or saying, I don't agree, can maybe start to raise the consciousness of the others to go, actually, he's right. This isn't this isn't who I want to be, mm -hmm. getting drawn into this. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. That's a right. great question. <laughs> good, good. I think it's a good one to finish with as well. Um, yeah. Sure. So... Well, we haven't quite finished yet because I've got some some quick fire questions that I ask every guest. So just three, and uh, you know the answers can be pretty short and snappy. the The first one is, what's one le lesson that you wish you'd have been taught when you were younger? If you're feeling anxiety, you're not broken. You don't need fixing. It's an entirely normal human response to events. What's one habit that I could introduce to my life that might help me feel better? Asking yourself, 
what am I doing to recharge my batteries today? Love it. And the last one, if you could give everyone in the world one book, which book would you give them? I had it already, and I don't know where I have. <laughs> I've done the same as my passport. I put it somewhere safe, but I wrote it down here. It's called The Five People You Meet in Heaven, and it's by Mitch Album, I think. Okay. I'm mortified I can't remember the author. Mitch Album, I think. The Five People You Meet in Heaven. It's a story about reflection, meaning, connection, and it's one I reread regularly. Interesting. I've never heard of it, and I, and I love that when a guest shares a book that I've never heard of. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. So before I let you go, though, you've got to tell me where can people find you? Where can they connect with you? You are the host of your own podcast, aren't you? Um, yeah. Which has, I believe, similar themes around psychology and things. So where, where can people find you and connect with you? Yeah. People can, can find me at rossmackintosh.co.uk. People can find me on the socials by searching for People Soup on podcast platforms on People Soup. And I think website or searching on People Soup, you'll generally find me. I'm not shy on the socials. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I've, I've really, really enjoyed this, Russ. These are themes that I find fascinating. And I just think it's such a privilege that someone with your experience and know-how will, will come on and, and chat to me when you could be outside enjoying the, that beer and those crisps. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sam, thank you so much for inviting me on the show. It's been such a treat to talk to you and really, really thought-provoking too. It's a great conversation. Thank you. Cheers, Ross. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you really enjoyed that one and found my conversation with Ross insightful. If you did enjoy the episode, as always, please, please share it with friends, family and colleagues who you think would find it helpful. And you can also support the podcast by following and rating the show on whichever app you're listening on. Thank you again. And I look forward to bringing you another episode soon.